Welcome to Useful Outsiders, brought to you by the Council for International Development. This episode was recorded at the Council for International Development's Annual Conference 2023 on the 21st of September in Wellington, New Zealand. In the episode, Rachel Mason Nunn, Director at Mandela Partners and founder of Goodwill Hunters Podcast, facilitates a panel discussion with Emilini Siali Elolahia, Executive Director of the Pacific Islands Association for Non-Governmental Organisations, Piango, as well as Chanel Van Dyken, Director of Marine and Heritage at Conservation International, and Bernadette Pinnell, Global Business Director at Home and Place. The group discussed partnerships, localization, and impact in the Pacific. Um, I'm very pleased to welcome um, Chanel Van Dyken and Bernadette Pannell to the stage. Can we give them a round of applause? Um, and we'll be having this conversation primarily on the topic of localization, but digging into some different angles on localization. Um, but before we do that, I want to introduce you properly to Bernadette and Chanel. So starting with um, you, Bernadette. Bernadette established Home in Place New Zealand in 2016 as a not-for-profit affordable housing organization and led the expansion of Home in Place International in 2020. Home in Place has been operating as a social housing organization in Australia for 40 years um, and has provided homes to over 20,000 people. Bernadette is focused on developing and managing climate resilient and affordable housing and associated social infrastructure in the Pacific. Do you want to go into your slides quickly and introduce oh, yourself? Yeah. Yes. Um, so we have recently been involved in the Pacific through the Pacific Urban Forum. Um, and. The mechanism for that is through the Pacific Urban Partnership. So it's a, a group of organizations, including the UNDP, um, UNSCAP, um, Monash University, University of Melbourne. And the focus has been to bring urban development issues to the forefront for discussion. And it was recently held at the PIFS building, um, the Pacific Island Forum Secretariat. And so I think the, the mechanism of that is actually really strong um, in terms of its solutions for the Pacific by the Pacific and that's a really important kind of tenant of our work as, as an NGO um, working in the Pacific. So, yeah, that's it. Thank you. And Chanel is a National Geographic Explorer and Marine Biologist and Marine and Heritage Director of Conservation International's Asia-Pacific Program. He has spent a lot of time on the open ocean, from New Zealand to Hawaii to Mexico to the Galapagos and so on. And when he's not doing that, he can be found exploring blockchain, crypto, and the digital frontier. So basically living my dream life. Um, do you want to tell us a bit more about yourself and your work? Yeah, thank you. Yeah, uh, kia tell for love, everyone. Yes, my name is Chanel, or Sangeli and Samoan um, Van Dyke, and my, my mother is Samoan and my dad is Dutch, so I'm, um, I've been brought up in a bicultural world. Brought up um, West Auckland and Salalua in Samoa. So that's the worldview that I come into this this with, and, and walking walking those two worlds. The the organisation I work for, Conservation International, that allows me to do a lot of the, the this great work that many of us are doing, um, and helps me pursue my 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 personal mission and purpose in supporting our communities. Um, we've been. We're a global organization with about 70 offices, field offices around the world. 
Um, we work with over uh, 2,000 partners. CI really looks at working in partnerships to get work done and trying to get mobilized resources for partners. So a lot of our work is built on partners uh, in the Pacific. We work across Asia Pacific and I've been working in the region um, in this role in the environmental field for about 14, 15 years. Wonderful. And I think you have some slides which have some graphics on them. There we go. Do you want to talk us through these quickly? Yeah, okay. Um, well, that was the opening slide. I was told to submit some slides uh, to add some color, but you can get them here. So then the next slide. These are our priority areas where CI really focuses on. So stabilizing climate, doubling ocean protection, and expanding uh, planet positive economies. So that's really helping with livelihoods. If we go to the next slide, this is how we do it. Partnerships, driving innovation, investing locally, partnerships again, and engaging with the governments and communities. And if you just go to the next slide, that is just where the field offices are based, but then we also work um, adjacent to that in those areas because it's not efficient or effective to have presence in all the places that you work. And I'm sure many of the IGOs in this, uh, this gathering realize that. And then the next slide. And in the Pacific, this is some of the areas that we, where we are working and supporting. And, um, and when we depict the Pacific, you know, I think many of us from the region think of ourselves as large ocean states, not small developing islands. So when I put pictures up, I put us up as EEZ, not as small islands and little dots, because that's not what we are. We are large ocean states, so that's why I put that picture up there. Um, and then maybe the next slide, I think that might be it. No. That's a great map. We've put together this panel for you because Ciale, Chanel and Bernadette each have um, very interesting and, and practical working experience of localization and from the perspectives of their different organizations. So we're hoping to raise some different and hopefully really useful takes on localization that you can apply into your work. I want to start, though, with a question for you, Ciale, which we were going to get to in the previous session, but it's a good um, sort of scene setter for localization. As everyone in this room would know, localization is a ubiquitous term in our sector now. Um, and, and, and so it should be, um, with it, but, it, but it has a wide range of meanings and applications across the spectrum of development. We hear it in the context of urgent humanitarian responses. We hear it in the context of local term, um, sorry, long-term protracted crises. And of course, we hear it in general development assistance. But in each of those contexts, the meaning and practice of localization can mean a very different thing. But fundamentally, localization is about challenging the historically exclusionary nature of the development sector, which is well documented in the decolonization discourse. Siali, can I get your comments on that and your view on the historical context for localization? I'm trying to see if I could put up one, one PowerPoint. So in the Pacific, we, we, uh, we are part of many conversations and, and we up to a point where we felt like we're going to be dominating our time trying to define localization because no one seems to agree on one definition. Uh, and so we brought in uh, many of our members, including some of the, some of the um, INGOs and government, 
and work around what is the, uh, the kind of definition that, that speaks to um, localization. So we did not come up with one definition. What we did, we kind of look at it from a, a, a framing, a framework, and we had like seven key components that we can say to ourselves, okay, if we are doing something on partnership, it's important to localization. Uh, leadership, uh, capacity, uh, the coordination and com complementarity of the work that we do. Um, funding, of course. If we, are, if we see that funding are being translated to local actors, uh, there's localizations. Uh, participation, yeah? and then policy influence and advocacy. And then we use this framework, trying to measure whether we can measure where localization is being used in four of our countries in the region, Solomon Islands, Fiji, Tonga, and Vanuatu. And why we picked the four? Because they're the red zones. Every hurricane that come in the Pacific, they would have to come through those four. Yeah? And so we use those countries. And this is the, after about three years, I think, this is the, the, the assessment of where we have seen the, the impact. And you can see there that uh, four, partnership coordination and complementarity, policy influence and advocacy participation, some in increase. So from where the baseline and now, there has been some indication that the INGOs and our donors are putting resources to support our locals in those four areas. What has no change is around leadership, funding, and capacity. Yeah? And I think that we can all relate to that. Leadership means that we still find that our local are either manager of something and never become the, or they become a chapter where they still have to go to Australia or come to Wellington for approval. But they have like the coordinator sits in Fiji or, or some other countries. So that has been the reality of where we see, rather than defining that we don't agree on almost everything, but we seem to make sense of this. The other interesting one is the funding. We still find that the funding is not going directly to, yeah? Australia is even worse. They put their money into their, their Australian organizations, and then they set up a coalition in Fiji, Solomon Islands, yeah, with all of their members who are, it's like they set themselves up here at home, set another center there, send the money to the center, from the center to go to the men. Very strategic and tricky, eh? But it doesn't serve anything, yeah? The capacity is the interesting one. What we find is that we overcapacitated one half of our people, but we still find gaps on areas that is important to them. Why? Because the design of the, the training is being brought in from somewhere. And then we just send our staff to go and attend those training. It does not address the core gaps within our organizations. What does that speak to? I mean, give Sialia core funding, and I will do as much as I can to make sure that the gaps within my team is upgraded. So this is what the Peter Framework is telling us. Thank you. Mm. No, that's great. Someone applauding there. I think that does deserve applause. <laughs> <laughs> this is a, this is a
the work that we partner with HEG. Maybe some of you guys know HEG is a humanitarian advisory group uh, based in Melbourne. Yeah. Um, they're funded by DFED. But I can still talk about DFED in a different way. Yeah? <laughs> Thank you. Um, I think that was a really helpful slide, and I saw a lot of a lot of photos and note taking there. So I think it was a really practical way, sort of a barometer to see where where we're tracking against those seven areas, which is a good spot to start this discussion. Um, I guess what it says to me is there remains a sizable gap between localization discourse and practice. Mm -hmm. We spend a lot of time on the discourse, and we spend, a, you know, everyone in this room would spend a, a lot of time on the practice as well. But there is a sizable gap. Um, and I think one reason for that is because shifting to a more locally led way of working requires changes to the status quo and business as usual. And that takes time and resources, which, um, as Siali got it there, you know, those resources aren't always abundant. Um, I want to go to the side of the panel. I'd love to hear from both of you. Where are you seeing localization being done well, like commendable? Um, and what are the driving forces behind that success, perhaps starting with you, Benedict? I think one of the things that I've noticed from my recurrent visits to the Pacific, I first went to the Pacific in 91 and have been going back in, to Papua New Guinea primarily over the years. And I think the primary change that I see is that the young educated people coming through. I think there's a lot more skills and expertise in the islands that actually are given credit. And I think there's an unconscious bias that, you know, Australia, New Zealand, Anglophobic kind of countries have to do it better, you know, and so we have to do it because they can't be trusted. And I think that that has to be called out. Um, and I think that's the first thing. The second thing is I think, the systems and processes that are used um, are deliberately kind of barriers as well. So at the, the recent Pacific Urban Forum, one of the sessions that I led was um, Indigenous Housing Solutions. So we had representation from Hawaii, from Canada, from the Aboriginal Housing Office in Canada, from the Aboriginal Housing Office in Australia, and Taranaki Fanui representation, um, and also to Matapihi, which is the peak body for um, in, in Māori housing here in New Zealand. And I think the common theme across that was an understanding that we still have this colonial lens, and we have to take that colonial lens away if we're actually going to empower um, the Pacific Islanders to do what they can and do what they do best. They know what the solutions are, they know what the answers are, and we actually have to enable them to, and help them to actually stand on their own two feet and do it. Um, and I don't mean that in a sense that they need support. They, are, they need the same level of funding as NGOs in this country and every other country. And so that's my kind of takeaway. Yeah, great. What are we doing well? You know, uh, during my time, what I've observed is that civil society now is getting a lot more uh, acceptance, right? To the point where we've got civil societies that have uh, government staff involved on their boards that are really, really good stuff. And I'm speaking from my experience with some NGOs that I've helped found and um, sit, on, sit on execs for um, in Samoa before I moved uh, back to New Zealand. And what I've seen in that space is they're more acceptance of civil society and the voices have got louder. It's not saying everything's right, but there's a lot more voices, there's a lot more pressure. So there's a lot of pressure building. There's a lot more coming. And I think we're gonna be getting to a tipping point very soon 
where it's all going to be giving way. Because as it's already been displayed um, earlier, the civil society are the ones doing the actual work on the ground and because the, the government cannot do everything. And so enabling that, how do we do that in an effective way that we get resources to these organisations so they can do the work that they're very, very well capable of doing? And um, that is the, the question we're all grasping with, right? Mm. So that's, um, that's what I, I sort of see uh, what we're doing well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that resource transfer piece is really important. But I, I think, as we've all kind of gotten at, it's actually somewhat difficult to know how well you're doing, right, with localization. That's like, right. I'm sure many organizations in the room can relate to this, um, that you know, there is not an obvious barometer per se, or, or a scorecard, and there's so many domains of localization that it's hard to know how you're doing. And that's why the work that Piango is doing with humanitarian advisory group is really critical because it is mapping localization across those, is it seven domains? Yes. So what would an organization wanting to self-assess their localization progress be, be looking for to know how they're doing? Be because the, the, the tool is is drafted in a way that you ask questions of the INGOs, you ask questions of the local NGOs, um, and then you ask questions of the government, particularly the NDMO who are leading a lot of the of the response, and then you try to triangulate the the result that came out. It's quite interesting to see that some of the INGOs that were participating in the in the survey kind of um, rank highly uh, the participations of local, but they still, but they still uh, don't have a clear sense of giving the, you know, the power and the, and, and I think it's because of how, how some of our INGOs in, in small communities are being a coordinator and the decisions are often not done, done there, it's done somewhere else. But, for, but for, for me, if I could say, other than trying to you know, complicate things and trying to pull our hair, trying to figure out where do we want to look into localizations, what we have seen change is the narrative around where do they see, now that there is a tool that they can use, it's, it's kind of give the, the local actors some sense of okay, if something happened at work and they still find that they're not invited into the meeting, it trigger, yeah? and they start asking, why are we not invited? Yeah? It may not be able to measure impact, but it does trigger sense of local actors to start asking questions, because they now see that this is a framework that they can use uh, because we still see that uh, in, a, in a lot of our, in a lot of our uh, Pacific countries, I see that firsthand when I go to Tonga for the response of the, of the tsunami. Um, you go into one room, all the UN agencies are around the table. Where are the local? The second round of table of, of chairs. It's not that they were not invited, but it's just like, I don't know, that's kind of humbleness within our local that are often not working for their own good. Yeah? Someone like me will have to go in there and say, okay, up, move forward. 
But then you start talking about localization. This is where we want to see. One of the other things also that we recognize that if we are not careful, we are polarizing the two. INGO to one corner and then local. And I think this is why it's hard for, for us to still continue talking about localization because it created fear in the INGO community because they feel like that they're gonna be irrelevant. But no, it's just gonna be make things clearer where we said, okay, this is your role, this is mine. And then we see how we complicate, how we can complement things. The idea of holding hands, I'm done with it. If I'm talking to donors, I'll say half, half. Give the local 50%, give the INGO 50%, and then they'll work out their way and find some common ground to work together. Otherwise, they're gonna hold hands forever. They have to be courtship and then marriage and then divorce and everything else, yeah? And they can do that by giving them that power of resources to find and navigate their way of how they can work together. I mean, you've articulated the biggest challenge there and you pointed out Australia's reticence on this earlier, um, which is you know, the key challenge that Australia's Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade faces with regards to localization is the perception of fiduciary risk just being too high. And thus, um, that's driving a lot of the hesitancy around localization. And as you say, the hand-holding and the, the using intermediaries and certainly trying to shift the dial in donor perceptions on this is really critical. But in, in the interim, how are we supporting, um, I mean, should we be supporting financial and governance capabilities of NGOs in the Pacific as well? I might start with you and we'll get everyone's take on this. Definitely. But this is the problem. You expect them to be up in their scale of their financial capacity without giving them any money. How do you expect them to improve? The double standard, you are giving government a lot of money and they mess up their account and you're still giving it to them. Yet civil society, you mess up one cent, you're out. Yeah? Put resources, if you feel like that they want to keep their, you know, up their, their system, up their game, take the risk of giving them the resources. If they run away with the money now, then you can come and tell me. Don't come and tell me that you, you know, that you don't give them the money because it's too risky. Come on, risky, have you even tried? I think we have to change the way we see things. Put some, and I'm not talking about risk, put some trust in the system and our local community and our local leaders. Give them some resources so they can find and experiment and even make their own mistakes and then build from there. I tell you, we have worked with the, those of you that know Jeff uh, Small Grand. They come to Tonga, they said, we have like 50 uh, US dollars that we talk to the government, we cannot give it to the community. Why? Because they cannot handle. I said, I promise you I'll work with this community and I'll report to you. Up to now, those communities have not eaten the money, as we call it in Tonga. They have not eaten the money and no one has run away with it. Because it's built on trust, yeah? And you will go your extra um, mile to make sure that those communities are actually accounted for. They may not know how to keep receipts, show them. Give them a receipt so they're familiar with that. 
Samoan Tonga, Fiji too. No, they don't know how to keep receipts, but they will be celebrating one big haul already done. How do you expect them that the haul will be on its own? No, they have managed the money well. It's just that the accounting of that small piece of paper is hard. And often what we do, have someone there to help them do that. And that's probably where the complementarity of the INGOs look for ways that you can help our local actors to account for the things that they usually take for granted. Because they think that the physical appearance of one big hall is enough. Unfortunately, no. Mm. Yep. I mean, I can go forever. <laughs> Thank you. Your thoughts? I think using technology um, a lot more than, than we currently are um, is, a, is an obvious way because you've got the accountability, you, can, you have the transparency as well. So I think that's the first thing. And uh, uh, with COVID, you know, there's lots of examples in terms of work that the universities had been doing. Um, and I, have, I do have a pet peeve about how much money universities are getting to tell people in the Pacific about how resettlement should be done and how beautiful water-sensitive urban design they're getting while they're still living in the slums. So that's just my little bugbear um, about how that funding should actually be used to, to help be relocating people. But, but I think in terms of transparency, you know, probably just using technology. Absolutely. I agree with um, my colleagues here. And I want to emphasize this resourcing, getting resourcing as localized as possible. You know, when you look at a village council in Samoa, like that is the most transparent accounting you will ever see because everyone's eyes are on that, there's money coming in, everyone wants to know where it's going. Like that's more transparent than in the government. Like, and that is a system that works, but yet that is not looked at like it can be trusted. And the ministers there, they know that they're very accountable to their, to their communities. And when they go to government, they're a little bit more like, oh, phew, you know. So it's almost offensive thinking that their localization, oh, I can't trust them with the money because it's the other way around. When the money hits uh, an NGO, all these community groups, because so many eyes are on it, like, I've never seen so many great accountants as I see in the islands. Like, the best money counters you will see. And because we've got limited resources, we're very good at making sure that that $1 goes this far. And we will go get our auntie to do this to make sure that we get the best deal for this and stuff like that. And you are leaning on your relationships to make sure you get the better prices for things. And that may not be, you may not be able to account for that to get your quotes and stuff, but it's far richer and you get a better price, you know? So you, you got these things that you can't really account for, but yet you managed to build a church for a quarter of a cost is what it would cost if it went to government. Mm -hmm. You know, so that localization, flipping that narrative and saying, yeah, we've got these accounting systems already in place within these the village governance systems. Why aren't we utilizing that? Why don't we pay for the staff that they can appoint a staff person then to do the ticks and whatever you need for a government donor. The other thing with that is your staffing within your own IGO and within your own ministry, you know, making sure you've got good representation of the places that where you are working. Like within the ministry, say for here, within um, MFAT, you know, increasing your Pacifica representation 
across there. When I look in the room here, increasing the Pacifica representation in the development sector, uh, because that representation also comes with networks that then makes things go, and you've got that glue, that, that oil that helps things in a much better place. So that's something too. One of the points that I just wanted to put, but I, I better stop there because I can keep on going. <laughs> no, it's a great point. Um, I know there'll be some questions in the room. I want to ask one more question of the panel before we go to the room. And you, you touched on it there, which is we talk so much about the risk that international donors and INGOs face when providing funds to local NGOs. We talk a lot about that fiduciary risk. What we never really talk about is the risk that local NGOs face when accepting funds from international organizations and the burden that can sometimes come with that. Um, I'd love to hear the panel's views on this. Who wants to start? Okay, um, I think for Probably that is where the, this is where the, the narrative um, need to be shifted. Um, when we're talking about risk, we're talking about the, the due diligence often being already set. Um, I have not heard anyone coming to our local communities and said, let's sit down and find a way of developing you know, a, a risk management or something like that. So that you explain and you go over the, the plan and, and co-design with your local partner. And, and then that will, that will make it genuine. Otherwise, you're just coming in and saying, and, and to make it worse, we often have our due diligence tied to the money. Like if you are not uh, meet this criteria, then you are not, uh, yeah? you are not entitled to the money. We go directly and pay the vendors. That's another way of doing it. Uh, workshops, you pay directly to the caterer and all of that. And you are just bypassing the opportunity for this group to learn how to manage money. And I think this is where we need to look at it from a broader sense. Is the risk, but you know the funny thing, the risk is not really for the locals. The risk is on you. How do you how do you manage that fund because you are on the contractual arrangement with the donors? So we are just passing the risk from you to other people. So you need to share the risk too, and don't just like expect that you pass it on and someone else will absorb that for you on your behalf. I think the other um, potential thing is to realize that as an NGO, you're only one of many NGOs who are coming into these communities telling them what to do. And, and that became really evident to me when I was working with Lady Carol Kiru in, in Papua New Guinea. And she'd say, OK, well, here's the Australians today. You know, the Europeans will be here next week, and then the Americans will be here the week after. And they have their view. And then, so we'll be doing this over here. We'll be doing that over there. And so I think it's really important to kind of remember that you're not the only kind of player coming into town and, and maybe coming around the other side and saying, well, what does it look like for them 
So what does all that compliance mean? How much time are they spending on compliance? And is there a way that we can actually mirror the compliance so they don't have to do different compliance regimes for different buckets of money? And how much money is actually being spent on compliance alone and not actually in delivering programs? Yeah, um, and, and so I think that if we're talking about risk to our local organizations and them taking on money, the, some of the things that I, I, I see is that if they accept money from a certain foundation or group, they're excluded from working with another group because if there's competition between them. So I've seen some of that with, with like in philanthropy, right? Because they're like, well, you're supporting them there. And so I know that some civil societies have to be careful about the, how they balance and who they're aligned with. And it's very, um, you know, it's a sensitive space. You want to be working with this big tent approach, but sometimes, and this is more so, I guess, well, there would be government risks too with what government you're working with, but more so in the philanthropy and the high net worth individual and foundations world, because there's a lot of egos in that world, you know, it sort of dictates sometimes of where that goes. So local NGOs, they, they need to be savvy with that and what risk they take on, on being with what potential foundation. Yeah, great point. I know we'll have some audience questions and we've got, we've got not long, and I don't wanna be the person that keeps you from afternoon tea. Um, so if you've got a great question that you'd like to ask the panel, um, I've got one hand up the back. Who else has a question? So we get a sense of how many, one, two, three, four, I think we've got time for maybe two, but let's give it a go. Um, let's keep your question brief and we'll get the panelists to ask it as, as quickly as possible as well. Um, starting up the back, yes. Kira, thanks for that. This great panel discussion. I'm really enjoying um, what's happening. Can, we, can I just ask for some comments from the panel though, getting away from finances. Talking about, uh, we, we've mentioned other things today, like safeguarding protection, how big that is, monitoring evaluation. From a local, we've got a point here, how, lo, how is localization an agent for change and impact? So keeping them away from the discussion about money, which is obviously an important discussion, I really interested to hear panelists' views on, on other aspects, like local safeguarding, local monitoring evaluation, um, and some input on that. Thank you very much. All right, I'll get a quick answer from each panelist. Go for it. Get the question. What does it mean? Local safeguarding, um, monitoring, evaluation, non-financial aspects of localization. Oh, okay, that's a tricky one. We, well, I, I just speak from experience of the work that we do. That oftentimes we don't pay attention, I think, to non-financial component. And we often ended up having much more of the contribution of communities to projects coming from in-kind. But if I could also say that we, we, we find that when we implement projects, we often don't capture all our concept into writing. And so a lot of the learning that we had are often not the one that we set up to do. But it's quite interesting because we, that, that, that's a, a, a skill gaps that we find with our community in terms of monitoring. Um, as I said earlier, when they see a physical presence of what the projects look like, that's it for them. 
but then we, we then still, and, and I suppose it's also connected to how due diligence, which is part of a, part of a Palangi project processes that we, that we have to, that we also have to bear in mind because depends on where the funds comes from. Uh, and that is why, you know, some of our community, when they couldn't meet the, you know, the criteria that are given, then they went out and do their own fundraising. One solely from one community to finish one part of the project rather than going back to the donor and request the remaining grants. I don't know whether I'm answering your questions. Yeah. I guess I'll just add another point. I think the impact, we're talking about financing because intuitively for us, the impact comes from that. You finance, get the resources, and then you can do your monitoring, you, you're doing all this, and through that process, there's where the impact is because you're building the capacity within those areas. And it's, you, the, the resources that we're getting to these places in a more direct vein. So there's the impact that comes. So I think that's why we, we, we talk about the resourcing because we know that impact's coming with that by going through those pro that process. Another way to look at it is, is your project progressing the SDGs? So what is the kind of artificial evaluation that you're doing if, if there's a bigger kind of program that the Pacific Islands are trying to achieve, which is the implementation and the delivery and the outcomes of the SDGs, then wouldn't that be a useful kind of benchmark to measure against? Great question. That question. What's the point of SDG to a community? They have no idea what it is. Yeah, I think I think we really need to relook at how we do how we do things. And one of the things that I find that I hate most is the competitive process of accessing fund. It's, it's undermine our solidarity of our civil society. And then you also recognize that it's hold us back from sharing our data because that data that we hold is actually formulating our next proposal. Moment you share with someone else, yeah, Alfred will get my idea, run with it because he can write better proposal, yeah? So we hold on to those data and there's, doesn't, doesn't seem to work. Is there a way that we can say to our partner that we have been partner for some time, okay, I will direct give you this $10 and go and do the work that you know best and come and tell me that it's done. And then we have one big puakatunu. <laughs> when you look at the Australian um, new aid policy as to what, that whole thing of partnerships and whether that, what that partnerships actually looks like when it becomes kind of operationalized, you know, whether it really is like a nice new buzzword or if it's authentic partnerships. Yes, keep an eye out for Australia's new civil society partnerships fund. Um, I think that's a really good message to finish on. I will invite the other question askers to find our panelists in the break. Hope that's okay. Um, and ask your questions directly. Um, but thank you all so much. Thank you to the panel. Thank you for being a part of this episode of Goodwill Hunters, which will air soon. Um, it's been really wonderful. Thank you. Thank you.